Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. You have a China that is both believes very strongly in its own system and yet sees America's very hawkish sentiment towards China as a real threat. This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We have some special guests joining us in our main segment today. Three reporters from Axios will discuss with us how COVID-19 has altered the relationship between the United States and China. And we were fortunate to have so much expertise on this call that we were able to look at that through a couple of different lenses. So stick around to hear that conversation. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about just where things are now, some of the big headlines, and we'll end as we always do with what's on our minds outside of politics. 
We also want to welcome Sarah Ralph as our newest executive producer. We got such a wonderful note from Sarah. She is someone that we've not corresponded with a whole lot. She's not super active on social media, but she's listened to Pantsy Politics for a long time, has been at a lower level on Patreon of support, and has decided to step up her contribution and be part of our executive producer team. And we are so honored by that. So Sarah, welcome and thanks to everyone. This week, there will be a hearing in the United States Senate about reopening the economy. The chair of the hearing, Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, will be chairing remotely because he was exposed to a staffer who tested positive. The three top health officials in the United States will be testifying remotely because they were exposed to someone who tested positive, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield, and Stephen Hahn from the FDA. And I really think that that is a true, true reflection of this moment. Let's have a hearing about how we really need to get back to work, but none of our experts can attend because they've all been exposed to somebody with the coronavirus. It's just this incredible tension for me because I understand what we're doing in Kentucky, this gradual, careful attempt to allow people to run their businesses again if they feel ready to. And I also really struggle with how we we so often think of things as binary. You know, businesses mm-hmm. are working so hard to figure out how do we responsibly run our business. And I think we need to have those conversations in our lives, too, about, OK, how do we responsibly go out into the world to patronize those businesses? And I'm fearful that the way we've set this up as though we are open or closed, because we've never mm-hmm. been fully closed. Let's be honest. That's why we still have cases. We were never fully closed. And if we fully open, we're going to have a lot more cases. And so where is that space where we can all say, OK, yes, a little bit more freedom equals a lot more responsibility on both ends, the business owner end and the customer end. There's a really good article in The Atlantic that we'll link in the show notes that said, like, basically take the the skeptic seriously, that it's not fair to paint it in this, oh, you either care about the economy or you care about human lives. Because the truth is a long-term shutdown will lead to a lot of suffering in human lives in real, real ways. Like you see opioid addiction take off when factories close and children out of school for long periods of time don't just suffer learning loss, but you see elevated rates of hunger, elevated rates of child abuse. So, you know, it's not that I think this is ridiculous because, of course, we have to stay shut down. End of story. Because I understand that there are, you know, massive massive risks from continuing to keep our economy shut down. It's that the requirements to reopen and to reopen safely are not pep talks. Like, I don't need another pep talk. And I'm not saying that's what Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield and Stephen Hahn are going to do anyway, but it does seem to be what the administration wants to do. Like, What we need is a coordinated, massive federal response with lots and lots of testing. You know, what's most likely going to happen with these three health officials and the vice president, who's also self-isolating, is that they were alerted that someone in their midst was positive through regular testing, and it will prevent it from spreading widely inside the White House. 
we need that level of testing that they have in the White House. It's not available everywhere. So, you know, if you guys are are facing this sort of outbreak with the level of testing and the level of control that you have, please don't look at the rest of us and expect us to have confidence as we begin to reopen. Like, we need that everywhere. It worked. You know, I don't think that you look at them and say, see, this means we have to shut down. It means that, well, their testing worked. And so everybody needs that level of testing. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about the question of employer liability because Mitch McConnell has stressed that he wants to see new legislation on that as part of any next round of funding. And Democrats are pretty much like, good good luck to you, but we're ready to press on with lots more funding. And I just don't know the answer on that because my gut instinct is always, one, let's not write more laws that we don't need to. Two, let's not write federal laws that could govern a whole lot of situations that we're not thinking of today for this crisis. And three, our reasonable person standard that we typically use in court is flexible enough to accommodate the situation. That said, I truly don't know what a reasonable business owner should do right now because Mm. you have so many competing concerns. You want to keep your business open for your own livelihood, for your employees, for your community that it serves. You want to serve that community responsibly. You don't want your employees to get sick. You don't want your customers to get sick. You're running out of funding or you're forced to take on loans that you didn't want to take on but felt you had no choice. I mean, there are just too many variables that I don't I don't know. And and how how is a judge to look at factors like, well, there was sort of guidance out there about gloves, but gloves were hard to get. But they tried to get gloves, but they got ineffective gloves. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't know how you would even assess the the scope of responsibility someone has. I was just reading about South Korea tracing 50 new cases to one guy mm-hmm. and thinking, what what are we to make of that in court? Court just isn't designed for that kind of problem. So I don't know. To me, the CDC guidance that was leaked to the press, that we covered some on social media in draft form, made so much sense in helping us, even vague as it was. There were places where I thought it was really vague. The administration apparently thought it was too prescriptive. But even with the the ambiguity surrounding it and all of the judgment calls it left in place, at least it's something. If I had a brick-and-mortar place to open to the public today, I would want something from some official source at the federal level before I opened my doors. What I don't understand with regards to the discussion about liability is that it seems to be premised on the idea that they have no protection in place now. I mean, we have a workers' compensation system with lots of cases and lots of precedent that at least would help us to start sorting out this new situation instead of just saying, well, it's hard, so let's just absolve them of liability. I don't think that's the way to give workers confidence to come back to work. And when you have situations where people feel either forced back to work, which you're seeing reporting on that, I don't have a choice. Either they're going to take away my unemployment or I have to go back to someplace that I don't feel safe. And then you have employers requesting liability. That is not a good confidence building environment to reopen our economy in. Well, not to get too legal nerdy about it, But how far does the chain of causation extend? 
you know, in terms of who could sue me, if someone gets sick in my restaurant, say, or my meatpacking plant, say, and that person does go out and become the one who infects 50, which of those 50 people can come back to me for redress? Can any of them? You know what I mean? Where does it stop? Again, I just am not sure that we're built for that on the scale that it could become if if lots of places really reopen and lots of consumers really show up. And how much risk do I assume by going into those places, aware of all the circumstances surrounding them? Well, I know you also spent some time this weekend thinking about Michael Flynn. Were you, what was that time well spent? Are you happy to be thinking about Michael Flynn again? Because let me tell you what, I'm not. I was happy not thinking about Michael Flynn anymore. Really happy about that. I am thinking less about Michael Flynn as a human being and more about Bill Barr as a human being. And no, I don't I want to think about him either. Do that. But I do think it's really important because here's where I am. When I initially heard that the Department of Justice was dropping charges against Flynn, I didn't have an enormous reaction. Just to disclose my biases, you know, I'm a person who thinks there should be massively fewer federal crimes. And that we tend to massively overcharge people and massively oversentence them. So I don't cry a lot of tears when charges against anybody get dropped just as a philosophical matter. But then I read the motion to dismiss these charges because it is a hell of a thing for a government to get a guilty plea for someone and then to go back in court and say, just kidding. And so... When I read the motion, that's when I got really concerned. The motion is signed by only one attorney. That's unusual. Mm -hmm. That attorney happens to be somebody who's worked with Bill Barr since the George H.W. Bush administration. So you just get the sense immediately from the form that this is politically decided. And then I started reading, and best I can tell, the current leadership of the Department of Justice thinks that charging someone with lying to the FBI should almost never happen. And I seriously doubt that that is a consistently held view. If they were doing this in lots of cases, if there were tons of people out there who were charged only with lying to the FBI and nothing else, and their testimony was never relevant to another investigation, and they were going into court to say, you know what, we're taking a different view. With respect to all of these people, we've decided that materiality is not satisfied for this to be a crime. I could honestly get behind that. But that is not what happened here, I don't think. And it is really hard for me to imagine that an attorney general who has been chomping at the bit to have the death penalty start being enforced again is doing this Mm -hmm. from a place of criminal justice reform and restraint on the part of prosecutors. The motion reads like it was written by Sean Hannity. It references text messages between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. It includes a headline about Obama sitting on a problem. It is just grievance-filled. It is unprofessional. It is embarrassing as a lawyer to see that this was filed by the Department of Justice in federal court. And so I am just, I am concerned at what this forebodes because it really structures an argument that the entire Mueller investigation was an abuse Mm -hmm. of authority. It's easy, I think, if you are looking at the coverage to think about this as a 
regular criminal case that the Justice Department looked at and thought, oh, I don't know, I think there were some mistakes made if you're just paying sort of surface level attention. And I think it's just exactly because of the Mueller probe, it's really important that this came out of a special prosecutor's office. And this seems to just shred the process by which we have set up independence for the special prosecutor's office. It's not as if the special prosecutor's office came out and said, "Mm, we made a mistake. They are stepping all over the independence of that office and politicizing it. And I don't know how that is going to affect not only the Mueller probe, but any future special prosecutors that might come in different administrations. That, to me, is what's so concerning. If it's written with such, you know, abrasive political language, how do you think the judge is going to react? I don't know, because this judge has used really strong language about Michael Flynn in this case. You know, this is the judge who said that this was really close to treason in his mind. So I have no idea what the judge will do. I don't know what I would do if I were the judge in this case, because on the one hand, I think if the government doesn't want to pursue charges against someone, we ought to drop it. It's not right to deprive someone of their liberty when no one's asking for it anymore. On the other hand, it would just really concern me. I think probably what I would do is grant the motion, but with a very sternly worded opinion about how I felt about all of this and with, you know, some caution about future prosecutors appearing in my courtroom. I just think this is very hard. And I totally agree with what you just said, not just as to special prosecutors, but as to the FBI in general. Mm -hmm. So I feel about this the way I feel about COVID-19, truly. We talk about these stories as though there is one way or the other way. And what we have instead is a really hard problem. How are you as an FBI to investigate anyone who has been elected without running into just a maze of problems when we are this politicized, when we are this partisan, mm-hmm. I should say? not We've always been politicized and we've always been partisan to an extent, but we are more partisan by almost every measure right now about matters concerning justice than we've been before, I think. And so if you look at all of the exhibits attached to this motion, and there are many, and I read them, it doesn't look great. It looks like a mess. It looks like the FBI didn't trust the lawyers in DOJ, didn't trust people in the administration. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence looks like they were adding to or at least not helping with the decision-making process. Things don't look good for anybody, but that's because it was a really hard problem. And Mm -hmm. there were reasons to be skeptical of everyone else. There were reasons to not share information well. I think if you take a hard glance at James Comey's life with the benefit of hindsight, how would you be operating investigating Donald Trump right after you just finished of an investigation of Hillary Clinton where no matter what partisan hat people are wearing, they think you got it wrong? You know, this is a person, it's so annoying to me when you say like... (laughs) Tell me your greatest weakness in a job interview. And someone's like, well, I just care too much. But I think that is what (laughs) happened with James Comey. I think he took too much responsibility on his own shoulders. Ooh, you're going to get some emails. You're going to get some emails. I'm going to get some emails and tried too hard to be the one person who could solve everything. And you get things wrong when you do that. And I think he was wrong either way. Like, I'd be getting emails no matter what happened here, right? Because there's not a good answer. It's a hard problem. 
So are there a ton of lessons learned here? There should be. I think congressional hearings conducted for the purpose of helping sort that out would make a lot of sense. I don't think that's the purpose for which they've been conducted or are going to be conducted. Um, But this is a dangerous situation. You know, I, I think when it was reported that President Obama was worried about what this meant for the rule of law, that he has legitimate concerns. After reading this motion, I really share a sense that what we thought we had in the Department of Justice, even knowing how strained it was, is is evaporating before our eyes. We also wanted to talk about a Vox article, and we'll link in the show notes, called The Agonizing Story of Tara Reid, and it's from Laura McGann. It's so well-written, and it is really Laura McGann's almost, you know, moment-by-moment journey through when Tara Reid first came to her with her accusations of sexual harassment in Joe Biden's office, how the accusations sifted to sexual assault, her reporting on this, just truly incredibly detailed. This is who I talked to. This is what I happened. This is when I when I asked Reed what she said. And what it really, really put in stark relief for me is that the Me Too movement in a lot of ways can feel and is a cultural conversation, but it is built upon a foundation of incredibly detailed reporting with Harvey Weinstein, with Matt Lauer, with all these powerful men and reporters who came forward and said, I don't need to tell you what to think. I don't need to tell you to believe women. What I'm going to do is to lay out in very, very detailed way what I know. And I think the way that Laura McGann does this about Tara Reid to me, is so powerful because I think the conversations can only flow when we're really standing on a firm foundation. And I think that's it's not an accident that the movement started with Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, where you literally had, you know, 60 plus, 30 plus women. And so you have this, you have just a massive amount of facts to discuss. And, you know, I think that that's what's so, and I think the headline is right, the agonizing story of Tara Reid is so hard because we do not have that. And I think why I like this article is instead of just sort of, well, let's talk around it or let's let's get upset or yell at each other or say one side's a hypocrite and one side isn't or whatever. She's just like, she's, I think the reporters that have been reporting on Tara Reid's story are in such a good place to lead this conversation because they're like, let me just tell you what I know. Let me just tell you what we know. And then we can go from there or not. Or we can just sit and say, here's what we know. Here's what we don't. That's it. That's all there is to it. So I thought it was a really, really, really great addition to this difficult story. I thought it was bravely written because for a journalist who is trying to build trust with an audience. I think a lot of what journalists have been told about mm-hmm. building building trust with an audience gets broken in this piece. You know, she tells us, I wanted to be able to find yeah. validation for the story. And that, yeah. that it had to be scary to hit publish on that. Mm-hmm. But that built so much mm-hmm. trust with me to just know where this yeah. person was. 
And yep. I think it would have done the same if she had said, I suspected from the beginning that this was bullshit, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. either way, just being forthright like that and letting me know where you're coming from. I felt a, a sense of I'm going to take this story more seriously than I've taken others just because of this yep. transparency. Um, and I yep. know that doesn't work in every context, but I thought it was really effective in this one. And and this again, doesn't come to much of a conclusion. It is, I couldn't validate this. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means I couldn't validate it. And it doesn't follow the patterns that we've seen in other stories like this. I've been thinking about this, and I really want to understand where you are on it, Sarah. You know, it bugs me to constantly have the refrain of Brett Kavanaugh in the background for a lot of reasons. I also don't think it's entirely unfair to ask the question, why Christine Blasey Ford? Why not Tara Reid? And I've been thinking about why Dr. Ford seems so credible to me from the very beginning and why I've been a little more on the fence about Tara Reid. And as I make that list, I'm really upset about the list. (laughs) You know, should a woman have to seem terrified in telling her story for us to think Mm. it's true? Should a woman have to be so reluctant to testify publicly for us to think that she's telling the truth? Uh, Should a woman have to have no political opinion to be believable? You know what I mean? Like, I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm feeling really tortured by all of the things that made Dr. Ford, to me, an unimpeachable witness versus Tara Reid. At the same time, I'm still inclined to believe that something happened with Tara Reid. I don't know exactly what. Um, I, so if, I don't need the emails that say, believe all women what, because I, I do believe her to some extent, at least. But but I'm trying to really examine and learn from this. Instead of, do I think this happened or not? And what what is my political judgment? What can I learn from this? And what I'm learning from it is deeply uncomfortable for me. Yeah, I mean, I just think that it... She did come forward with accusations that do meet the pattern that we have seen in previous Me Too moments. She said that he there was sexual harassment, that there was inappropriate touching that went too long, that made her feel uncomfortable. And so did a bunch of other women <laughs> come forward and say, this made me, you know, he his hand lingered too long. He held my face. He Like, we know that there is sort of that more predictable pattern present in Joe Biden's past, he has, you know, addressed it directly. Um, And again, for the, you know, millionth time, just to be on the record, it was enough to disqualify him as a candidate for you and for me. For what it's worth, I still probably won't be voting for Joe Biden. I will probably still fill my ballot out for Elizabeth Warren. I say probably because sometimes you get in there, although I guess I won't be getting in there. I have, I have requested an absentee You're ballot. You're talking about the primary now, not the general yes, the election, primary. right? Right, the primary. And so with Christine Blasey Ford, I think there is a really important moment that especially I think comes in stark relief and is is a really important part of the story in the book she said, which is the story of the two um, New York Times reporters that broke the Weinstein Story And they spend a part of the book on the Kavanaugh hearing, which is, first of all, Christine Blasey Ford was not standing alone. There were other women who spoke out about similar treatment from Kavanaugh. And then there was a moment where Michael Avenatti came back with this sort of over the top 
story that pushed in their telling, and I think they're probably right, many of the moderate senators like, whoa, 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 whoa. So just anybody can come forward and say, also, oh, he gang wrecked me. And that's that means we believe them automatically. And it seemed to like turn the tide of that moment. It's not it's not fair to say, what about Christine Blasey Ford? Because I don't think that's an ad- accurate description of that moment. But I, I know I definitely see what you're saying of like, again, to me, believe all women means take the accusation seriously. It does not mean that every woman who steps forward, there should be a presumption that everything she says is true. Not because false accusations are this just, you know, terrible, terrible thing that are just run rampant. Although it is worth noting they do happen. Listen, that Duke lacrosse story is intense. And you can't watch that documentary without coming away being like, oh, dang, that's scary. Um, And it was a false accusation. But because what we know about trauma, you know, believe women and take their accusations seriously and and be give so much grace and forgiveness for what we know that sort of trauma does to our memories, does to our recollections, does to. And and I think that can mean what you're saying, which is you got to give grace for the way people react. Some people aren't going to be afraid. Some people are going to be angry. Some people are going to be, you know, not remember somebody. Some people are going to tell some everybody. Some people are not going to tell anybody. So I think, you know, believe women means a lot. It doesn't just mean one thing. And I think we have to to let that phrase hold the complexity of these moments. I mean, that's definitely something I learned as a rape crisis center counselor in college. You cannot judge someone in a crisis because you're not in it. And people react all different ways. You know, you will have rape victims sitting in an emergency room cracking jokes with their friends. You cannot let that be the basis for whether or not you believe them or not. Because I think when we say believe women and when I say take it seriously, the hopefully the impact of that is, you know, treating sexual assault with the the weight of its impact on a life, on a psyche, on a culture, on, you know, everyone involved and understanding that it is hugely complex and it's not going to be solved, you know, wrapped up neatly in a bow on either side, you know, like believe everybody or don't believe everybody. Like it's never one rule is not going to work. It's not a math problem. It's a human problem. And those are inherently difficult to solve. I think that's a theme for me of everything we've talked about so far. I don't want to talk about do we open or close? I want to talk about the balance of freedom and responsibility. You know, I don't want to talk about is Joe Biden disqualified or not? I want to talk about how our assumptions about the way women are supposed to behave impact our assessment of women's credibility in telling these stories. With Michael Flynn, I don't want to talk about whether he goes to jail or not. I want to talk about what's happening with the Department of Justice. And I realize that there is an immediate reality. But the pattern that I'm seeing is that our tendency to elevate the outcome of the immediate reality is why we end up continuing to have immediate realities that are unacceptable. And so Mm -hmm. I just, I want to be asking better questions in all of these conversations. Um, And it's really challenging to do that, just given all of the things happening in our society right now. And that's where I feel myself getting a little bit down. (laughs) But also recognizing that if, if we can do that, 
we would have really different immediate realities in a in a positive way. Well, we want to shift ever so slightly from the the heaviness of these complex situations to complimenting many of your local leaders. You still send them in. They're still so encouraging to read. We got a couple submissions complimenting the governor of Rhode Island, Gina Raimondo. The governor's approval ratings were not typically very high among either Republicans or progressives coming into the crisis, but she's really seen that change over the course of the COVID-19 outbreak. She took action before many other states. She had statewide distance learning start last month and seems to understand the balance we were talking about between opening the economy and doing it smart so people stay safe. We also heard from Molly about State Assemblywoman Robin Vining in Wisconsin. She and her staff send out what Molly says, and I love this detail, is just one email each day. (laughs) They hope you can rely on to tell you everything you need to know about the coronavirus situation for that day. She said the objective is to free up constituent time and let them focus on other things besides gathering news and give them a reliable source. And Molly says, I'm not even in her district, but I look forward to that email each day for calm, relevant, and clear information. I love that approach. Megan also complimented Mayor Jeff Williams of Arlington, Texas. She says he's been such an encouragement to our city. He has been both practical and positive on social media, and we received a mailer with tips for both our physical and mental health during COVID-19. He has encouraged us to check on loved ones and neighbors, support small businesses, and reconnect with our families. He has been a light during this dark time. Next up, we are going to share our conversation with what I'm going to call the Axios reporters. They'll introduce themselves to you about the United States relationship with China. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. We are really excited to have three amazing reporters from Axios with us. And before we start, I just want to tell you all on a personal level that your work matters a lot to me. Your work is a primary source for the research that I do for the show. I read the Axios newsletters religiously. So thank you all for everything that you're doing. Thank you. We would love for our listeners to be able to put names and voices together, especially since we have a few people. So could we just have you introduce yourselves, Alexi, Elena, and then Bethany? Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for having me. I'm Alexi McCammond, and I'm a political reporter with Axios covering the 2020 presidential election. I'm Elena Treen. I'm a White House reporter for Axios, and I cover the Trump administration and Congress. I'm Bethany Allen Abrahamian. I'm the China reporter at Axios, and I cover everything China and China-U.S. relations. We really want to talk about China relations today from the perspective of the White House, Congress, the Chinese government, and also how the interaction the United States has with China could impact the November election. So could we start out with just a little bit of setting the stage? How was the White House thinking about China pre-COVID? And I think it makes sense probably to direct that question to Elena, but if I'm wrong at any point, let me know. And then I would love to hear just a little bit about how that translated to Congress, all pre-coronavirus. I'm happy to start here. And I know Bethany, I'm sure, has a lot of thoughts as well. But uh, the Trump administration, I mean, from as early as the campaign, the president has always been a hardliner against China. He really, um, I'd say, has brought the two parties, Republicans, and Democrats together on the issue um, in criticizing China and, you know, labeling, wanting to label them as a currency manipulator, wanting to go after them um, for intellectual property theft. Um, and we've seen, you know, throughout his time, there's been the trade war with China. Uh, there's been several policies aimed at at least showing uh, the United States wouldn't bow down to some of what China is doing. And we've seen that translate into Congress as well. It's kind of 
the long running joke among DC reporters is that uh, there's only two issues that uh, Senator Chuck Schumer and President Trump agree on, and that's really China and the way that uh, the U.S. relationship should be with them. Um, And Bethany, I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. So I'd like to go back a little bit before the Trump administration to kind of uh, give us a bit of context. So Obama really believed in engagement with China, which is to say that if we engage with them, we bring them into our institutions, they will eventually become more like us. They will become more democratic and they will open up and become more liberal. And toward the end of the end of the Obama administration, it became ever more clear to everyone who, who followed China, to all China analysts in the U.S. that that was not happening. And what, but Obama, the Obama administration did not really change their strategy over time. And so there was a lot of frustration, uh, even among Democrats, among basically anyone who followed this issue, that the the U.S. really needed a new China strategy. So when a Republican administration came in and was willing to be more hawkish on China, you saw pretty much anyone who followed China across the political spectrum unite behind the understanding that we need a China policy that acknowledges China's hard authoritarian turn. Now, the the Trump administration's policies towards China have been in some ways, from from the perspective of China watchers, um, a little bit schizophrenic because sometimes he'll be tough in some areas and less tough in others. Uh, But you have seen before the coronavirus what's been called the bipartisan consensus on China, which is not an agreement on policy, but at least an agreement in theory that we need a tougher approach. Well, before we move on to like what it's like post-COVID, I want to ask Alexi, because that schizophrenic approach to me seems to be very motivated by his re-election. It seemed like when he first came in, he was really ready to shred it and go to be hawkish, have a trade war. And then it's the schizophrenia to me seemed to come in the closer we got to 2020 and and we suffered more of the consequences of said trade war with China. And then you saw, well, he needs an agreement. He needs an agreement for his re-election. He needs to show a success. He needs to show a win. He needs to show a campaign promise met. And then it seemed to be like, oh, well, they're doing such a good job on this, this, and that. We don't really want to make them mad because we need an, we need an end to this trade war for the re-election. Am I just projecting, Alexi, or do you feel like that a lot of that 2020 motivation started to come into the policy? Well, one thing is clear, and we've seen this from President Trump from the beginning, and even when he was running for president in 2016, and that's, you know, his electoral chances often, in fact, and it are influencing a lot of different things that he's doing, especially policy. I mean, that could be immigration. It could be health care. Uh, it could be something like China and foreign policy, and he will find a way to turn it into a cultural hot button issue that his you know, base group of supporters will really glom onto in a way that people just aren't going to probably be attracted to foreign policy or China otherwise. And I think that's something he understands. Um, I'm not going to claim to know his internal motivations, um, but we know, again, based on a pattern of behavior that that he is often thinking about his re-election efforts, especially now that we are in a general election, now that Joe Biden is the presumptive Democratic nominee, he has a clear opponent. And that's something that we've been seeing him attack Joe Biden over, uh-huh. painting Joe Biden as someone who he says is soft on China, someone who won't stand up to China in the way that President Trump claims he will. Obviously, we've seen him go back and forth on that issue. But we're seeing how Trump is actually injecting this into the election, trying to make it an issue that will get him reelected and not get Joe Biden elected. 
Do you see a split, Elena, in the White House over China at this point? Is there anybody in the White House who has that more Obama-era mentality about China, or is everyone pretty well aligned on a tough stance despite occasionally hearing that she is Trump's best friend? Uh, I'd say, I mean, it depends on who you refer to. Um, With the White House, I think the people that the president brought in himself, not the career officials, definitely um, agree with the president and back him up on his his tough China stance. But I do agree. Um, and with what Bethany pointed out is that it is definitely very confusing because the president uh, will rail against China. We're seeing that happen now, of course, during um, the coronavirus pandemic and in response to how China's been handling it, but also before, um, you know, saying we need to be tougher and implement these uh, massive tariffs on their country and, uh, you know, engage in this trade war. But then you see him inviting him to Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, remarking on how wonderful their relationship is. We've done this with, of course, other world leaders that past leaders would not qualify as best friends or anything like that, like North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. But I do think that everyone in the White House um, really does back him up on this. And we've seen it translate to Congress as well. Again, I think um, even Democrats really do align with um, the president's view, and in some ways on the overall stance of of being tough on China, not necessarily the, the tariffs and the way that he's gone about in engaging them on this. And we've seen, um, you know, I'd say it even translated into some of the Democratic contenders that he's going to face, or he, was, he would have faced in, uh, in November, of course, now uh, it'll be Joe Biden. But um, I remember I did, we did a story a couple months ago when there were more candidates uh, on the stage and asked them, you know, how would you go about handling China? Would you maintain tariffs on them? What do you think about the president's approach? And by and large, a lot of them said that they would continue um, this tough on China stance that the president has been uh, using so far. So, Bethany, now that we are living in a pandemic world and, you know, we often talk about on Pansy Politics that COVID-19 has just accelerated the pace of change in so many important areas. Are you seeing big shifts in this policy towards China or the approach towards China, either with the Trump administration or with the different parties in Congress? Uh, there has been an enormous and extremely rapid shift if you talk about how the parties are now talking about and aligning on China. So I, I mentioned before this bipartisan consensus. Uh, there was a moment where within two weeks, that consensus completely fell apart. Uh, And that moment was when President Trump used the phrase Chinese virus, and uh, I think Pence used Wuhan virus. And that was accompanied by, around the same time, we saw a spike in anti-Chinese and anti-Asian American racism in the United States. So that what happened right then was the Democratic Party said, oh, no, uh, this is racist and it's causing uh, bad racist things to happen to Americans. We must immediately uh, mobilize to protect these people. And we're going to do that by pushing back against President Trump's blaming of China for the virus. And Republicans took the kind of uh, and they went far in the in the other direction. Uh, where they said, this fault, we absolutely cannot get the Chinese, we cannot let the government get away with their cover up. We can't let the Chinese government get away with their disinformation campaigns, in which they're trying to blame the United States for the virus. And so they went really hard uh, down the path of 
hammering China really, really hard. And so you saw the two parties just go in completely opposite directions incredibly quickly. And as a result, there is, I mean, that that consensus is, is gone, at least for now. And one um, clear indicator of that would be what happened when the Biden campaign put out an ad trying to say that uh, Biden, too, was very tough on China and was, in fact, tougher on China than President Trump. And he was attacked from his own base, from, from Democrats. He was attacked. Uh, and they said they called that ad racist. And so what you see right now is Republicans um, do not see any downsides to really doubling down on criticizing the Chinese Communist Party. And Democrats uh, basically can't talk about China at all. Bethany, this is something I am really struggling with. I feel like with other countries, and Iran comes to mind for me, our political leaders do a decent job of saying there's a difference between the regime in charge of this country and the people of this country. So when we talk about the Iranian government, we're not talking about all Iranian people. We're with the Iranian people. We're sorry that they're being treated so horribly by their government. Do we have a substantive difference between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese Communist Party leadership that would allow that same kind of breakdown around China and we're just not doing it? Or is it materially different than countries where we sort of separate out the people from the leadership? In some ways, I'm sort of uniquely well positioned to answer that question because my husband is actually Iranian. Um, And I actually think that the U.S. government, except in words, does a very poor job, uh, especially in this administration, of distinguishing Iranians from their government. And the best example of that would be the travel ban, because uh, my mother-in-law cannot come see us. So my husband and myself and my son are being punished because they are Iranian people. Uh, So I don't think that this administration does a good job of distinguishing people from governments, even if they use words to indicate that they do. And uh, I would say that that also holds true for uh, how they how they talk about China. Uh, in, in the case of China, what you really want to make the distinction is, is between the Chinese people and the Chinese Communist Party. I do think that there is a really, really strong effort within both parties, including the Republican Party, to say the Chinese Communist Party instead of saying China. And that's important. And it's you know that's something that we should really continue to emphasize. Um, you know, but when you have, for example, within the administration, and there's different parts within the administration that have different views, but when you have Stephen Miller, for example, suggesting that a good tactic would be to uh, cancel all Chinese student visas, and there's 360,000 Chinese students in wow. the United States who put their ent- literally their whole lives into preparing to come study here. And their parents paid tens of thousands of dollars that they saved up over their entire lives to do that. To propose to cancel their visas is against the people. It's not against the government. Alexi, I wonder if there's any way to talk about this in the context of the 2020 election. It's difficult even in conversations, I think, among political analysis, even on our show, because there are so many things true at the same time that the Chinese government did not respond soon enough and with enough transparency. And also many of their approaches were successful and we can learn from them. That there seems to be lots of important research taking place in the 
Chinese province where the virus originated. Like, those are just really complex stories to tell. And I'm not sure if there's a way for Joe Biden to fit the complexity of our relationship with China when it comes to COVID-19 in a perspective that will that will work in a in a national campaign. You know, if if and especially like I feel like I can hear it. I can hear the Democrats care so little about our national security that all they care is like one saying something saying the virus is where it came from is racist and we can't even protect our country because they're so sense. I mean, I can hear it. I can hear the, the commercials right themselves. And so I'm like wondering, does Joe Biden or the Democratic Party have any path forward if it if, you know, as Bethany was describing, any talk of China is considered racist by the base? I mean, look, like I just have to be honest. I don't think that China is going to be a deciding factor in this election as much as like it's an issue right now. The voters who will actually decide this election in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, Colorado, like those people, I'm telling you, are thinking a lot more about their personal financial situation and healthcare than China. That said, Joe Biden is obviously talking about China, but he's talking about it in a way that focuses on Donald Trump's ability to lead the United States of America on a global stage, which he says is increasingly putting us at a lower standing on the global stage because Trump doesn't stand up to these authoritarian leaders and regimes. Instead, he cozies up to them and pushes away our foreign allies. He talks about what he would do as president, what he did as vice president, and how he would restore respect for America on the global stage, you know, again, with respect to what Trump has done. China certainly fits into that. I think the tricky thing, of course, is that the people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016 like his bravado to an extent. They like the way that he has stood up to China. They like the tariffs and the trade war that he's launched on other places because they feel like, whether they know this because of their, because they're informed or they just feel like this because they like Trump, they feel like America has been taken advantage of and they like that they feel like Trump is looking out for them specifically and for the country at large. That is something that Trump will continue to do as a re-election effort. But for Joe Biden's part, I don't think that winning the election is going to come down to how he talks about China or our relationship with China. He'll do that in small, intimate settings, virtual fundraisers, you know, with big dollar donors who probably care more about this than the average person, you know, again, who's deciding this election in these key swing counties and key battleground states. But um, I don't think that Joe Biden's election efforts are going to be you know, centered around talking about China. And to your point, I think it's a really complex thing to articulate, you know, even if you're an expert in this, it's an it's a difficult thing mm-hmm. to articulate and explain to the average person in a way that will get them to care. And in a way that, you know, truly will stick with them, not just their minds, but their hearts. Because I think at the end of the day, that's what people vote on, their hearts, not their minds. I want to ask you, Elena, to what extent it matters that Congress is now divided about China, because I I think this administration has done so much unilaterally that sometimes I think, what is Congress's role in our foreign policy anymore at all? But particularly when we're combating COVID-19 and and trying to facilitate some kind of conversation about trade with China, does it matter that Congress is not on the same page anymore? It definitely matters. And I think that in the grand scheme of how, you know, the Trump administration and Congress and the U.S. government is going to deal with China and the fallout, um, you know, from their coronavirus response, 
we will start seeing, we've already started to see uh, action taken, you know, in Congress with and different lawsuits now uh, popping up and getting support from members of the Senate and of the Congress and, and people at the White House. Um, and I think that what we're starting to see, and Bethany explained this a bit, is, um, you know, the partisanship that we've seen throughout government um, really starting to become even more of a bigger divide now um, during this pandemic. And uh, it's interesting. I'm I'm really curious to see how this will play out with the broader policy towards China. There was so much, I'd say people would say so much progress really made um, with how with the Trump administration's, uh, you know, trade war, like they had come to a phase one deal uh, finally, earlier this year, expecting to have another deal later on. Uh, and of course, that's totally being upended now by what's happened with the pandemic. And so I think that um, for there to be support for anything, any sort of legislation or bills, you're going to need both Democrats and Republicans to come together to support legislation, um, unless the president, of course, can do do anything by executive order. And so it will impact uh, how the the United States addresses uh, their response here. Bethany, do you see any shifts in the perception of the United States from the Chinese government's side as a result of how we've managed COVID-19 and and kind of this shift in partisan breakdown on China? Again, I'll just go back in time a little bit to set the stage. We saw the biggest shift in how Chinese leaders view the United States uh, in the aftermath of the financial crisis in 2008. And it is not an exaggeration to say that there were significant uh, you know, Chinese elites in Beijing who believed that the imminent collapse of the United States was upon us. They really thought that our system um, was showing that it was a failure. And that has underlied a lot of the real assertiveness that we've seen in the past decade or so from China, believing for the first time that they actually have a superior system. And the the pandemic uh, here and that the United States now has by far the highest number of cases, by far the highest number of deaths in the world is reinforcing not just to China's leaders, but but even to just average Chinese people, that the U.S. is a declining power and that our, and that, uh, our government is, is not very functional anymore. Now, that's, like a, it's a, that's a very broad statement, and there's a lot of nuance there, and there are people who are going to disagree with that in China. That is absolutely one shift that we're seeing in China. Uh, a, a second one would be a huge rise in nationalism in China and nativism and xenophobia and anti-U.S. sentiment. And we're seeing this officially. We're seeing this from Chinese diplomats who in recent months have gone on a very public disinformation campaign where they, you know, Chinese diplomats on Twitter are spreading literal conspiracy theories about the virus having been created by the CIA or the U.S. military planted in Wuhan. Uh, and so there's this, it's, you know, there's a term for this. We call it wolf warrior diplomacy. Um, but very much you have a China that is both believes very strongly in its own system and yet sees America's um, very hawkish sentiment towards China as a real threat. Well, thank you so much to all three of you for coming in and bringing such a level of expertise and helping us sort out the complexity to all these different angles of our relationship with China. We really, really, really appreciate it. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. 
I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Beth, what do you think about this week outside politics? So I shared a couple weeks ago that I was really enjoying Making the Cut, the Heidi Klum, Tim Gunn collaboration with Amazon. And I read a great article that Chad found that summarized kind of what I was taking in while I was watching it, but unable to put into words, which is that Making the Cut takes what we've learned about product placement 
and says, I'm not going to waste your time. I am here to sell you things. I am here to sell you Amazon services. I am here to sell you clothing. I'm here to sell you clothing on Amazon. I'd like you, in (laughs) fact, to buy the winning look from this episode on Amazon as soon as you watch it. And there was something about how obvious that was the whole time that made it not bother me at all in the way that it bothers me a lot to have shows be like, and now you can get into your Buick whatevers and drive to the place, you know, <laughs> the, the, the subtler product placement, I'm putting subtle in air quotes, um, bugs me way more than this just total in your face. You're watching an entertaining infomercial. And this article makes the point that that just could be where it all goes. And maybe there's something about that that's fine. I don't know if embracing this sort of unfettered capitalism (laughs) is uh, good or if because especially with regards to fashion, because it just has such an impact um, environmentally, especially if you're trying to turn it around quickly um, and on the workers making it. And I just feel like that's like the opposite of what we need in particular with clothing right now. Like we talked on a nightly nuance that you're trying to um, like get your closet in a better space. And that's what we all need. We all need less clothes, like not clothes we can get even faster from Amazon. Yeah. And I will say I did not buy anything while watching it. I think what it is for me is that I don't think buying and selling is either good or bad. I think it just is. And it can take on all kinds of characteristics. And so when someone is selling me something, I want them to be really direct about it. I would much rather have a really direct conversation. This is consumerism. It is what I am putting in front of you instead of the constant, did you like this character? Maybe you'll Google what kind of sweater that was. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. um, we are we are being sold to whether people are being honest about it or not. So the honesty was refreshing to me. Well, let me just take us in a completely different direction, because what I'm thinking about outside politics is our new rats. So my 10-year-old, soon-to-be 11-year-old, made the case that for his birthday, he should get rats. You have to get two, because they're social and they get lonely. They can't be by themselves. Um, he made he put on quite the case. You know, I think this is the right age. I think, like, every 10-year-old on planet Earth decides they want their own pet. Um, I think I got a I was probably younger than 10. I was definitely younger than 10. But um, I got a, a hamster that quickly passed away one Christmas. And then I got a gerbil. Um, and I have, you know, guinea pigs, friends with guinea pigs and on and on and on. But I have to tell you, my child was right. Rats are the far superior choice when it comes to small mammal pets for your children. I love these things. They're so sweet. So we got two boys. They're called the twins. Their names are Frisk and Hodgepodge, picked out by my son Griffin. But they're so sweet. Like, gerbils and hamsters are the most boring. Like, they just sit there, or they hide, or they act like you're trying to murder them every moment. Where the rats are like, I mean, they literally, like, come up to the cage. And they're like, hey, what you doing? Come talk to me. What you doing? Come here. Come here. You want to pet me? You want to hold me? Come here. What are you doing? I mean, they're so stinking sweet. I love them so much. So I read from someone when you announced that the rats had joined your family that they can, like, get lost quite a bit because they're sort of sneaky and tiny and move around a lot. Have you lost them yet? Um, well, they're tiny now, but they're supposed to get four times as big. They get pretty big. Um, I did not. I must have missed that that comment somewhere, but I am super paranoid because I love them so much. Every time my child takes them out, I'm like, close the door, put them here, play constitution because they are fast. They're not a joke. And he's like, got them up on his window seat and he's like, they won't jump. And I'm like, Griffin, 
let me assure you, they will jump. Um, so I am pretty paranoid about that. I'm paranoid about that. And the other sort of down spot to, our, to the rats is they get upper respiratory infections really easy. So you have to kind of keep it warm and um, you have to run a humidifier for them. So they're they're hardier in some ways, but a little in um, more sensitive in the upper respiratory phase. But all of that makes up, I think, everything, the sensitivity as far as that is more than made up for in the fact that they're like the only small mammal that uses a freaking litter box. It's amazing. They use, Like the bigger ones do. I think ferrets do and some other ones. But they use litter boxes, which I think is so awesome. I just love them. I really, really do. They're so sweet. What's the expected lifespan? Two to three years. Okay. But I think a lot of people, from what I tell, like, they live a lot longer. It just depends. I really dig Griffin's names for them. And he looks very happy. And I'm delighted for him that he's very happy with his new pets. Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you all so much for joining us today. You can hear more conversations like these on The Nuance Life and lots of wonderful input from listeners. You might have noticed that we slipped a Nuance Life into your regular Pantsuit Politics feed over the weekend uh, because we would love for you to check that show out. It is available anywhere you get your podcast. We'll be back here with you on Friday between now and then. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsu Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin and Studio D Productions. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Martha Brunitsky, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Amy Whited, Jared Menson, Allison Luzader, Barry Kaufman, and Sarah Ralph. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram at pantsuitpolitics.